Welcome back to Search for DOS. In this episode, we meet David Magerman. David was born in South Miami, and he went on to get a BS from UPenn and a PhD in computer science from Stanford. David is an investor and a philanthropist, having spent 22 years working at the quantitative hedge fund Renaissance Technologies, which is one of the world's largest hedge funds with over $100 billion under management. After leaving Renaissance, David founded a venture capital firm called Differential Ventures. And since graduating Penn, David has made it a priority to give back to the institution. He served on boards and has given over $5 million to various initiatives. This strong commitment came into question recently when he decided to write a letter to UPenn's president, Liz McGill. In the letter, David makes it clear that unlike other outspoken donors, he is not calling for the current president to step down. Instead, he is simply stating he's breaking up with the university. In his interview on CNN with Jim Acosta, when asked why subsequent statements by the university didn't satisfy him, David responded, quote, I felt like the reaction they had at first was authentic. It represented who they were, and I didn't think anything they said could change that. Their values aren't my values. In this conversation, David and I do a deep dive into the following. His relationship to Penn, what went into his decision to write the letter, why he believes Penn is mired in moral relativism, why it is critical to know the values of the institutions you support, his research into the 15 to $20 billion of undocumented gifts received by leading institutions like Penn, the importance of Israel to the Jewish people, and finally, a fun round of quick fire questions where I foolishly ask a kosher person for his favorite place for a Philly cheesesteak. I really enjoyed our conversation. I thank David for making the time to meet with all of us and for being a clear, intelligent, and passionate voice during a time when America and the Jewish people desperately need one. Now, I give you David Magerman. David Magerman, welcome to Search for DOS. Thank you for having me. How have the past few weeks been? I mean, you know, the, the campus stuff has been a big part of the outward facing stuff, but I mean, the war is really everything. And I've been very engaged with people in Israel, both on the kind of uh, humanitarian support side, donating and rallying people to donate, and also strategic thinking, talking to people about, you know, where where I see the war going, where I can be helpful, connecting people in Israel to people in America, and just trying to be a part of the, the war effort. I mean, that, that's the, you know, the, this campus stuff, the anti-Semitism in America is a little bit of a sideshow. Um, if we don't win the war, it doesn't really matter. Um, and once we win the war, it's gonna be a whole new landscape. You know, that, that the way the world's gonna see Israel after it obliterates Hamas in Gaza, 
um, it's going to be, it's going to reset everything. So, I mean, I think it's important to have these conversations and people in Israel have been inspired by um, Jews in America standing up for them. But um, I think the, the war is really the main issue and Israel winning the war and all the things that we can do in America, all the things Jews around the world can do to help Israel win the war is kind of the primary concern. That's so important to put into perspective, incredibly well said. And I think what we're talking about in this podcast about what's happening at college campuses is super important, especially as American Jews, but understanding that what's happening in Israel and the importance of Jews having a homeland is paramount. But, but I, th I, think, I think the campus thing is, is demonstrating a truth about the world's perspective on Jews in the diaspora for the past 2000 years. And I think that it's, you know, it's crystallizing for us what we would have seen if we lived in different eras in the 20s and 30s in Germany, in the 1400s in Spain, you know, in the, in the Middle Ages, in the Dark Ages, in, in, in uh, you know, in, in the, the Arab countries, like throughout history, we have experienced this. This is just the um, focus of the world showing what it thinks of Jews in the moment in our lives right now. My close friend from Vanderbilt, where I went undergrad, we had a conversation just earlier today. He said, how you doing? And I said, well, I'm okay. I obviously uh, feel for everyone who directly impacted by what happened on 10-7 and everyone in Israel who is currently fighting. But I said that I've had thoughts and emotions that I thought I never was going to feel. I think these are, I thought these were antiquated thoughts. I thought that it was, these were thoughts of, unfortunately, thoughts that people in my, in my family history felt hundreds of years ago. And probably the last person to really feel them was my, uh, my grandfather who was born in Ukraine and left because of all of uh, the uh, horrific things that went down in that country, but even before World War II. And so, yeah, I think uh, I think you're you're exactly right that this is this is emblematic of what the world thinks of Israel and Jews. Yep. I'm going to give an intro uh, to the audience about you and your career and what you've done today in your relationship to UPenn. But I'd like for you to take a few seconds to walk us through your career. Sure. Um, I mean, so I'm a, a computer scientist by training, uh, went to undergrad at Penn, got a math and computer science degree and did my grad work at Stanford. It got a PhD in computer science. And I did um, early work in data-driven approaches to solving problems in natural language processing. And it, kind of before it was cool, like now it's kind of very hip to be doing NLP and generative AI and all that. But back in the 80s and 90s, it was kind of a, a nascent field. Um, and I did my thesis work at IBM, uh, left there with a couple of people from IBM and went and joined uh, a quantitative hedge fund, which also wasn't really a thing back then. This is uh, mid nineties, really before computerized trading was really a thing and uh, spent um, much of my adult life and much of my career at Renaissance Technologies, uh, running trading there, uh, doing a lot of research, developing algorithms and so on. And then left in 2017 um, for a variety of reasons and then I went back to my academic roots, trying to get re-engaged with um, technologists, engineers, people building AI solutions and deploying them and hoping that 
my experience working with computer systems and data science and AI in the real world, both in academia and at Renaissance, hoping that experience could help guide founders to do uh, better things with their technology. And um, based on that, I uh, founded a, a venture capital fund uh, called Differential Ventures uh, with my partner, Nick Adams. And we've been investing for the past five, six years in uh, data-oriented, data-focused uh, startups, um, selling software to uh, enterprises, and um, focused on investing in the US, in Canada, and in Israel. I know we could have an entire conversation on your experience investing, but we're here to talk about what you have chosen to do in terms of the words that you've shared publicly, the letter you wrote to the president at UPenn on October 15th. And so why don't you help us understand your relationship to UPenn? You said you're, uh, you're an alum, but what's your relationship been like since you graduated? Yeah, so um, I got involved after I graduated from Penn and I started working um, really after grad school. Um, I got re-engaged with Penn as a donor. Um, someone came out to visit me after I'd made a little bit of money at, at, uh, in quantitative trading at Renaissance and I started donating to the college. And I also got involved um, as an alum with some of the student groups. There was a computer science um, student society that I got involved with as an, as an advisor. And then eventually I joined the uh, board of Overseers of the Engineering School, which is a non-fiduciary board. It's not like the Board of Trustees, but it's an advisory board to the Dean of the Engineering School. And I got engaged with other alumni um, talking about how um, things I thought I saw in, in how the Engineering School was developing and um, kind of advising on certain policy issues. Um, and I, I also started giving. Um, I was at that point not very Jewishly engaged. Um, I was still, you know, kind of living a, a secular life um, as a Jew, um, and I wanted to give back, but I felt very indebted to my alma mater for preparing me for life. I, I credit a lot of my, the practicality of my education to what I learned at Penn and the way Penn's program was structured to teach real-world skills, not just theory, um, and I, I was really felt very indebted to Penn, so I, I started giving back and eventually made a major gift. Um, when they were building a new computer science building and they needed a lead gift for the naming rights. And I basically gave $5 million somewhat anonymously to basically to lower the price that they would need for the lead uh, donor to name the building. Um, and eventually I, I named something in the building, but you know, the idea was that I didn't really want um, to have my name on things. I just wanted to help the school and um, was happy to be a donor and to be engaged. Um, and over the years I've given other gifts. I, um, funded a, uh, a term, a professorship um, in the computer science department and uh, gave other gifts to honor various uh, faculty members and leaders of the school. Um, but I also, during the course of my um, life, towards the tail end of my um, stint at Renaissance in the two, late mid 2000s, I started getting um, more involved in, Ju in Judaism, learning more about Torah, uh, becoming more observant and became to understand that that giving charity, tzedakah, um, was not about giving to these secular institutions like, you know, museums and schools. It really was, uh, you know, the Torah defines how philanthropy should be, that you should be giving to your community, to Torah education, to Israel, um, to, to, to humanitarian causes that involve, uh, you know, both the Jewish people and people in the world, but that there was really like a structure to how you should give and I needed to learn more about 
the, the, the Torah laws of philanthropy. And that pulled me a bit away from giving to Penn. I started giving to uh, Yeshiva University and I joined the board of trustees of Yeshiva University. I also started giving to other uh, educational programs and found, I, I started a foundation called the Kohelet Foundation that gave tens of millions of dollars to um, support uh, uh, like uh, elementary to high school, uh, day school education um, in, in my community and, and in America and kind of around the world. And I, I remain connected to Penn. I, I, I left the Board of Overseers, but I remain connected to Penn um, as a, a cons you know an advisor to the dean would consult me every once in a while on issues. And I um, engaged with the school on some things. Um, and then eventually when my oldest children were ready to go to college, my oldest son applied to Penn and got accepted um, and ended up go, um, going to the engineering school, getting a computer science degree, the same degree I got, actually having some of the same professors that taught me. And his academic advisor was the same person that was my academic advisor 30 years ago. So there was really a lot of like kind of warm connectivity. And you know, the, the schools really do a great job of creating this family-like feel where you feel a part of the school throughout your life. And you know, they, 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 keep, they, they keep you in the loop on alumni issues and you have reunions and you know, there's a lot of warmth that is created with that relationship um, that really is unlike any other, you know, kind of corporate relationship in your life um, that really feels like you're a part of a family. And with my kids going to the school, my younger son is also at Penn now. He, he, he uh, decided to go to Penn as well. And I was starting to re-engage with the school and in fact had made a pledge to give a significant gift towards um, a data science building that they're building um, that, they were, that um, they were still involved with, uh, with developing. And um, that was leading into this, um, this time period where a few things happened that kind of damaged my relationship kind of irreparably with Penn. In your letter, I want to want to read an excerpt from it because it was very clear in what you were conveying to the president of the university, Liz McGill, and the chairman, Scott Bach. And in it, you said, quote, in response to the Palestine Rights Festival, President McGill declared that the university, quote, fiercely supports the expression of views that are incompatible with our institutional values. One could argue whether you really have an obligation to fiercely support views that go against your values. I do not believe you do. But my bigger question is, what exactly are your values? Excellent question. I think that individuals who are struggling with the reaction they're seeing on campus at, uh, at places like UPenn are, are not necessarily homing in on that word values. But I think that's exactly what it is. And you also, in your letter, reference Ben Sass, who's now the president of the University of Florida, and he made very clear what his values were and what he hopes the values of the University of Florida are. So looking at UPenn, given that you now re-engaged it with, um, with your, your children there and getting a view that's really close, what would you say are the values of the institution at this point? Um, well, they're claiming to be value-free, <laughs> you know, in that they're, they're claiming that their mission is to not impose values on the school because 
individuals at the school have their own values and they want to be inclusive of everybody. But I imagine if there was a cannibalist club, um, they probably wouldn't support that. Maybe they would, I'm not sure. But it's clear that in society, we have values. There, there are, um, you know, according to people who believe in a higher power, there are God-given values that are, you know, inviolable, that are absolute. And we live our lives by certain, what I would call inviolable, uh, inviolable values. Again, cannibalism off the table. Um, you know, random murdering people, not acceptable. There are th things that are considered, you know, wrong, evil, bad. And there are things that are considered good. And the school is trying to represent themselves as being a place where you can express any view you want, even if, as they said, it goes against their values. But it's hard to, uh, it's hard to understand what their values could be if they're going to promote and fiercely defend any speech. Um, and that's not really an obligation. You know, the government, except for yelling fire in a, in, in, in a crowded space, the government has an obligation to allow free speech, but institutions don't. And, you know, I choose to send my children to a, to a place. I choose to donate money. I chose to engage intellectually with institutions and I'm free to do that or not to. I will make those choices based on the values that I see institutions expressing. And like with Ben, ben Sass and his um, statements, like you said, he showed that his institution has a belief system that it adheres to, that it promotes and it expects its students to abide by. Uh, Penn made it clear, not only with the, with the reaction um, to the Hamas atrocities, but even before when they hosted this Palestine Rights Festival um, and their reaction saying that they would fiercely support speech that went against whatever their unstated values were, um, that was a sign that they were going to turn a blind eye to an event that was hosting people affiliated with terrorism, people who were known to be anti-Semites, people who had been, you know, banned from various places. You know, uh, Roger Waters um, is not welcome in Germany, Germany anymore because he was marching around in a replica of, of a Nazi uniform in one of his concerts. Like these are people that are beyond the pale and for Penn to allow departments in their school to sponsor and to welcome that kind of event, even to force students that were in the classes in those departments to attend the event. Jewish students that were taking Arabic studies classes initially were required to go to this Palestine Rights Festival. If they didn't go, they'd be penalized. They eventually rescinded that after people complained. But just the idea that they would have this event that was around anti-Semitism, that was focusing on berating Israel and berating Jews and make Jewish students go to it. That is representing values that it is not something that I could align myself with, that I would fight against, and that I think that reasonable people would fight against um, if, they, if they knew about it. And it seems to contradict a core belief that seem to be prominent over the past five to seven years, which would, you know, a place like UPenn or other Ivy League institutions, which is this idea of a safe space, right? For other students, for other causes, there was this idea of, well, hey, it uh, speech 
can even be violence uh, is, is, is a refrain that was not uncommon to hear on college campuses over the past five to seven years. And so it, it's bizarrely almost like a flip of what seemed to be the, um, the common viewpoint on these campuses, right? And I, it's fascinating to see how institutions, the, the, the Harvard president came out with a similar line about like fiercely defends free speech. And if you're an individual on these campus that has had a different viewpoint than some of the, the uh, I guess you could say, kind of left-leaning views over the past five to seven years, I don't think one would have felt um, a, a culture of fiercely defending that person's ability to share that point of view. So uh, not only do they seem to be making the wrong value judgment, they actually seem to also being um, hypocritical to the stances they've been taking over the past five, five to seven years. Yes. Imagine if they had an antebellum rights festival of writers that were uh, promoting the beauty of the time before the Civil War, when we had slavery and, you know, and, and, and African-Americans had uh, were counted as three fifths of a person and didn't have the right to freedom, much less civil rights and other other uh, um, participation in society. If there was a group of people that were hosting KKK members and, you know, rabid racists, David Duke types, and there was an event being planned on campus, do you think that the president's reaction would have been the same? There's a there's a a double standard which is like a mile high, a mile apart when it comes to Jews um, and their rights on campus. The safe spaces for them um, are not are non-existent, and I think that this last few months, you know, the last two months on campus around the country, but especially at Penn, has put a, sh a shining light on that discrepancy, on that um, hip hypocritical approach to freedom of speech and safe spaces when it comes to Jews versus other other groups, other minorities. That, that's a great point. The, uh, the double standard is, is immense. I want to talk about what has transpired since you wrote the letter. What has there been a reaction from you, Penn? That's the first part. And the second part is, what do you hope happens from here on out? So I really did not expect the response to the letter. Um, I'm not on social media. The only the only place I have any kind of account is on LinkedIn, where I have my like work community. And I really posted it. I sent the letter to um, the president and uh, the chairman of the board, and I posted it to my whatever 900 followers on uh, on LinkedIn. You know, a lot of them are Israeli uh, founders and, and VC investors, just really showing that I was standing up for for Jews and for Israel, not really expecting it to get much attention. And obviously, that was uh, um, not what happened. And the amazing thing was that for the first week after uh, it was posted and it got it was shared on Twitter and got like one and a half million views on Twitter and people were reading it from all over. I didn't get a single negative response. And this is the internet. Like the internet doesn't know how to have only positive responses. And I was really so like gratified and so warmed by the idea that it had had such a, pos a uniformly positive impact that whoever was bothered by it wasn't so bothered by it, they wanted to you know, flame me. And 
so many people were in, were inspired by it, were were moved by it, felt felt um, you know supported by it, especially people in Israel. Like it really had an amazing positive effect that I was really just just gratified by because um, I I didn't really have a specific goal in mind. I really just wanted to break up with Penn, um, and and I was very clear, uh, and, I, and I wrote it partly because I saw other people. Um, doing things that I thought were counterproductive, specifically donors. And, and I, I respect I respect these donors. They really were standing up for Israel and for Jews. And I really appreciate that they were doing what they thought was right. I'm not criticizing them. But I thought that what they were asking for was not constructive. They were negotiating with the different schools, whether it was Harvard or Stanford or Penn. Or, they were negotiating for a better statement. And they were trying to get the least offensive statements out of the university that would satisfy their minimum standards of being acceptable. And I just knew that after their first, their first response was probably cra carefully crafted. It wasn't as that, that was like just free form, you know, uh, stream of consciousness. They thought that was good enough. So that represented, you know, not quite their truth, but something that was close enough to their truth. That they felt like they could get away with it. And so I didn't want to go through this process of negotiating an even more false statement that was further from their truth just to appease our sense of inclusiveness, inclu includedness, um, when clearly we were not being included. Our concerns were not being addressed. We weren't being um, supported. And frankly, we were being antagonized by the way they were reacting. And I thought knowing that and knowing their truth knowing who they were. I said in my letter, I, I see who you are. Like, I, I, I see you. Like, that, that, that clarity to me was more valuable than the negotiated statements. And I didn't want them to keep rehabilitating themselves to the point that it would be harder to see, harder to criticize them. I had people who were responding to me saying, like, oh, did you see the fourth letter that, that Liz McGill sent? And I'm like, yes, I did. And it was lovely. But it was, frankly, also not enough. But it was still, you know, not what they really thought. So I, I think that this clarity of what certain colleges view, how they view Jews versus other, quote unquote, protected groups, other other minorities, other people that they feel like they want to make safe spaces for. I thought that that discrepancy was really important to highlight. If Penn found a way to get back to the values that you You've, that you you believe are important. An institution that looked more like the institution that shaped you and the person you are in today today and allowed you to uh, build the career that you built. Would you return? Would you return with your support? I think it's a hypothetical that that should be undermined from the start. It shouldn't do that. And you know the faculty senate sent out a message saying we don't want these donors to you know manipulate our values. They don't want you know, they're blackmailing us and forcing us to change what we think. And first of all, we're not taking money away from them we gave already. We're just not giving them new money. So I don't see how we're, we're really doing anything but expressing the freedom of our wallets. But, but I, I think that we shouldn't have that impact. This is what Penn wants to be. The people who are going to Penn now deserve a place. They deserve an excellent school. There's no reason why, the, if they're focusing on first generation um, students, they're focusing on you know people people of color in different different segments of society. They're focusing on foreign students who live in places where they don't have access to it to this kind of education. That's a wonderful mission, and if that's their mission, they should f 
follow it. They shouldn't change because some, uh, you know, alumni from 30, 40 years ago want to turn back the clock. You know, we don't have rotary phones anymore. We don't have, you know, uh, water fountains anymore. Like, it's okay. Progress is fine. And if, if this is how Penn is evolving, that's fine. But we should be free to move ourselves to find places that have the values that align with who we are today and who we want our children to be. And we should focus our philanthropy, focus our intellectual energies, and focus our children's education on places that have those values. And that's why I think that, you know, the, the, the model of, of donating to universities is that you're 18, 19 years old, you go to a place and you're, you have whatever values you have as a, as a kid. And then you finish college, you develop a relationship with your alma mater, you go out in the world, you make a lot of money or you, or you don't, and you change, you grow, you evolve, you, the world changes. And then 30 or 40 years later, you're looking back. And if you have a lot of money, you're donating it retrospectively to a place that's completely different probably from where you, where it was when you went, you're a completely different person than when you were there. And the world is a different place overall. And that retrospective philanthropy doesn't make a lot of sense. What makes more sense to me is a prospective philanthropy where you look at the world today, you look at who you are, you know, what you want for the world going forward and look at the institutions that exist in the world and see who could benefit and how could my values be enhanced and propagated in the world through my philanthropy? And I think that Penn is making clear in schools, the kind of liberal um, Ivy League and top universities in America are making it clear that their mission is one of lifting up people who have not had as much access to education and you know the kind of support that uh, they can provide those people. And that's, again, it's a fine mission but they're doing it in a place that's devoid of God. It's devoid of, of absolute values. It's a morally re relativistic place. And that's not where my values are. And that's not where I feel like I wanna move the world and move, move uh, society. So I'm gonna use my resources and hopefully encourage other people who are like-minded to send their resources to places where they are respecting a higher power, where they do believe in some absolute moral good and evil and who are gonna support that and allow the school to teach that on campus to the children, to the students, both in terms of the classes they take, but also in terms of the environment they encourage on campus, which will allow for some kind of an absolute morality, not to be imposed on people, but to be available to people. And I feel like Penn is becoming a place where it's very morally relativistic. They're not um, encouraging any kind of values. They're kind of letting, letting people do what they do and be who they are. And again, that's that's their prerogative, but we should be allowed to choose where we send our money and where we send our children to be educated. And it's interesting to think about the the contrast between the looking back and, and donating toward this institution that shaped you or looking forward and donating to institutions, creating an institution or donating to an institution that exists with lines with the values you have at the moment. The before we depart this, I want to home in on something you said in terms of the the current institution and it educating um, the current set of students it has. I guess where I want to um, challenge is, is because you, you said receiving a good ed education. Do you even think that what they're providing at this moment for the students who are going into UPenn is a 
is a solid education is is preparing them to operate in this world and, and lead this country? Um, you know, it, it's funny. Like I, I, um, I grew up in, my, in South Miami in kind of a bad part of town and went to what was what was at the time one of the worst public school systems in the country, you know, rankings wise. Um, and I managed to do well enough to get into Penn and to go on and have like an, uh, you know, a career that reflects that I got a good education. I think a lot of education starts at home and is what you pull out of an institution. When I was at Penn, I did undergraduate research. Um, I reached out to professors and got involved with projects they were doing proactively. I spent a lot of my time in labs in undergrad, not in parties. Um, I think that Penn is, Penn is still a place that has faculty that if you are careful and you are aggressive and you are thoughtful, you can pull an amazing uh, education out of it. But the core curriculum, the required classes, the electives, um, certain leanings of different departments, um, you have to defend against. And that's a shame, you know, that, that a liberal arts education used to be something that broadened your horizons in a way which if you were open-minded and were, were open to learning new things, you would grow as a person. Now, I think that, that the, some of these, uh, a lot of these uh, college campuses are places where you have to really teach your kids to be guarded and protect them from learning things that are gonna narrow their perspective, push them in the wrong direction, and teach them things that are contrary to having a productive life, uh, a life of leadership, a, li a life of, uh, you know, uh, of engaging um, effectively in society. So I, I think that's the, 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 the difference between historically what these schools were and what they are now. And I think it's very deliberate. Um, there's a lot of, um, uh, this is some research that I've recently been uh, engaged with, with some groups that I'm involved with, that um, some of it's been published, uh, leaked into the press, but we're coming out with a report uh, later later this week, um, that there's been an enormous amount of undocumented money going into American colleges on the order of 10 to $15 billion over the last, I don't know, decade or so. Um, and the idea, you know, typically you give a gift to a school, you give $50 million, you give $10 million, you give something, you get, uh, you know, an endowed share, you get a name on a building, you, you name something, you have a gift agreement, you get a tax deduction. That's kind of the typical documented donations. But there's an enormous amount of money going into colleges, which is kind of under the table. It's not being documented, it's not being promoted. And what it's buying is perspective. It's buying faculty appointments, it's buying the leanings of departments, it's buying shifts in curriculum, and it's all being done very quietly and insidiously um, and if you think about like, why would a donor do that? Well, obviously they're trying to impact, but the question is why would an institution accept it? And to me, the only answer is because they desire that shift. They're looking to have some of these anti-Semitic, anti-Israel ideas be promulgated and promoted through different departments. And they want to see that shift because of their unstated agenda. This is where I say I don't know what the values of Penn are. The fact that Penn accepts so much undocumented money and you see it, it correlated with the shift in uh, the, the growth of anti-Semitism on campus, uh, the changes in the uh, leanings of different departments, the fact that so many departments were supporting this Palestine rights event is the impact that this undocumented money has had. And to me, the final statement they made when the, when the faculty senate 
declared that they don't need our money. And then I saw this report, I realized they're right. They actually don't need our money because they're getting it elsewhere. And our money comes with the kind of strings attached to it that we're getting now, which is, you know, wanting to see our values expressed in the school. The other money that's coming in quietly is having a different impact. And perhaps that's the impact that the, that the school wants, that the administration wants, that the board wants, and that the faculty want. What are some sources of these undocumented uh, funds? Um, the, uh, the, the report's coming out this week, which will shed more of light on it, but a, a large amount of the money's coming from Qatar, from Saudi Arabia, from sovereign wealth funds um, and other places. And there's also money coming in from China and from, from other, other places. But you know, in terms of the correlation between the impact of this money on anti-Semitism on campuses, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of clear logically which, which money would be wanting to do that. So as it stands right now, an institution like UPenn is not required to disclose the sources of the undocumented. Correct. Well, I'm looking forward to reading that report. It sounds like really important. And these are important institutions, not just for the alums, but for our entire country. And so we should understand who's, who's shaping that. Yeah, no, and it's, it's really interesting. The, you know, the, the, there's been a movement to increase the number of scholarship students. You know, some colleges even going as far as um, giving full scholarships to broad swaths of students. And the only way that you can really achieve that and, and still pay your bills is to raise tuition and then accept a lot of foreign students who pay full, full tuition. So if the tuitions are $40,000 a year and then you know, Americans are paying that or they're, um, you know, getting some some scholarship or some loans, um, then that's one one way of making a living. The other thing to do is to make tuition $80,000 a year, double tuition, give the Americans a free ride, but but selectively pick who those Americans are, and then accept enough foreign students paying $80,000 a year for a $40,000 education to collectively pay uh, pay the pay the bills. And you see the the incredible rise in tuitions which is really not justified by the quality of education. Um, and nonetheless, people are, you know, people are not, you know, they're still sending their kids to the schools. And I think that's the calculus that people are, that these colleges are doing is that they're diversifying their campus by bringing in a lot of foreign students, which come along with big donors. You, know, you bring in a lot of, you know, uh, students from like from India, rich families in India, rich families in the Middle East, um, rich families in China, and they come and they pay full freight. They give donations on the side. And then you can accept non-tuition payers for the rest of it. But the, the resulting demographics of the campus is very different from where it was 30 or 40 years ago, which again, is fine if that's your mission. But don't pretend you're the same school that I went to in, in, the, in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, but not even demographics. It's not the same demographics, it, but that's not, in my mind, the most important. It's the values, right? Like what... The founding values, I, the, my view is what made what makes these institutions great. I guess I should say, you know, what made them great. It's unclear if they're still at that great level. But I think what made them great is that they were very clear about their values and over time brought in different types of people into the institution. And then they were shaped by those values. All right. I, just like you, am Jewish and went to a boarding school that uh, up until, I don't know, probably the 1940s, 50s, no Jewish people went there. It was not shaped by 
Jews. It was not founded by Jewish people. The values were were um, the values were what they were, and over time, people who didn't look like or didn't have the the, the religious affiliation of the people who came in, uh, who founded it, would come in and were shaped by that. And I think those those were in many ways those transcended the religious affiliation, those transcended um, some cultural norms. But what they were, what they did was that they, they provided a moral foundation. There was no moral relativism. It was very clear about what the institution uh, stood for. And I think that the shift, returning to what you said earlier about the moral relativism, that, that is very dangerous. It, it, to have in a society, period. But when the sense-making institutions, the ones that form the minds of the individuals that end up having power to lead the country are, are filled with moral relativism, I, I just don't see how the nation can, uh, continues in a good direction. Right. And, you know, I, I mean, America, even though there is this cl very clearly stated separation of church and state, America was founded as a Christian country there's so much about God and Christianity and the Bible that infuses the founding fathers' writings and the reasons why they came to America, they escaped oppression, they wanted to be able to practice their religion in whatever ways. I mean, Jews were even permitted to practice, but you know, there were Quakers, there were Catholics, there were all different stripes of Christianity that were persecuted in Europe that came here and they were permitted to practice how they wanted and they spread out and you know, didn't, didn't get in each other's way. You know, the, the country's a little bit crowded now, but back then it was kind of wide open. You didn't like where you were. You just went a little bit west and you, were, you had your own field. Um, but like the, throughout our history, throughout America's history, Christianity and what they call Judeo-Christian values, values based on the Torah, based on the Bible, based on, on an adherence to a higher power, God, and what God has commanded us, those are... Um, those are intrinsic to the development of the country. And what you've seen in the last 40 years in America is a rebellion against God, you know, and a, a rebellion, a, a, a scientific, intellectual, liberal rebellion, a, a view that, that following God and following God's teachings is somehow a violation of people's rights and is somehow wrong, even though when you reject God, you reject the definition of right and wrong. Because, you know, a human definition of right or wrong is, is you know, completely malleable. But the, the idea that we are living in a country that has, in, in many ways, threatened the adherence to a, a higher power, I think, is, is, reflects what's going on in the country today and what's going on on college campuses, what's going on in government, what's going on in society, that we are going against the values that, that the country was founded on. Um, and I'm not kidding myself that this is a Jewish country. This is a Christian country. And thank God that they, they created a system which allowed for the practice of different religions. But it, what it has been for 200 plus years, a Christian country. And when you take that away, you threaten the fabric and the foundation and you see the, 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 the country breaking apart um, as a result of that. We were built to have debates about ideas but not about values. When the nation is debating values, then you've lost that, that foundation. 
And so I think that's, that's why you ended up being in the spot you were at, right? It's not, it wasn't about having a conversation with the president about some ideas. It was the fact you recognized that the, the, you were down at the values level and that you had to break up at that point. Yeah, and, and the truth and, is that I, bro I broke up with the school before the war started. I actually wrote a letter to the dean of the engineering school that was not an open letter. It was a closed letter, it was just an email, basically saying to him, I was no longer gonna donate to the school because of their, their reaction to the Palestine Rights Festival. It was only when the war started and the uproar over uh, President McGill's reaction and all the donors who were, who were demanding you know, like what Mark Rowan said that he was um, secretly commanded to leave the board of, of the Wharton School and he wouldn't stand for that and wanted to stay on the board and fight from within. I felt like that was the wrong reaction. I felt like that was a self-defeating reaction that it was it was a very pre-Holocaust 1920s Germany reaction of saying, I'm I'm a German. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm French. I want to be a part of the society in Europe that is that I've earned my way in. I've earned I've earned my way with my with my intellect, with my accomplishments. I've paid my way in. I'm a German Jew, but I'm a German first, and you can't kick me out just because I'm Jewish. And we we saw where that led to, because the reality was that no matter where you are in the world, except in Israel, you're always a Jew, even if you're only one eighth a Jew, you're still a Jew, and what the Jewish donors to Penn were doing was trying to claw their way back into a place where the end result of that is what, what happened in, in, in the 30s and, and 40s in Germany. And I, and I, I, I want to caution people, you know, we've been saying never again for, for more than half a century. I, real, I want people to realize it's again. And I don't, I don't say that lightly. It's again. We are seeing the beginnings of the same thing that happened to us, except we are more entrenched in America. We feel more a part of America. We, we're governors, we're senators, we're, we're in leadership positions, we're in, in, in key positions of, of the economy, of, of industry. Um, and there's a reality that we, even though we think we're all that, we're not safe in America any more than we were safe in Germany or in France or in Poland. And we just need to be watching and paying attention and not falling into the trap that the German Jews and the French Jews fell into of thinking that because I am German, that I'm safe, because I'm French and I'm cultured and I'm civilized and my friends are all the, the non-Jewish leaders of the country, that somehow I'm safe. That, that, that didn't work then and it's not gonna work now. Well, what do you do with that feeling though? If, 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 if the alarm bells are going off and saying, yeah, this, this feels like all the same ingredients are, are here that were there in the twenties and thirties in Germany, what do you do with that information? There is one monumental difference. And I can't express this any stronger between now and then, and that's the state of Israel. We have, a, we have a home. We've had a home since the time of Abraham and we lost the right to be there. We put and sent in exile. And ever since then, every day, every Jew that prays in a prayer service prays for the return, prays for redemption, prays to be allowed to return back to, to Israel and re restore our, our, uh, our, our, the kingship of David, our right to be 
uh, govern ourselves in the land of Israel. That's the place where we're safe. And we have it now. And not only do we have it, you know, I, 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 I like to refer that, that we, Israel is like the Wakanda of the Jewish people. It's got amazing technology. It's this tiny country hidden away in the middle of like, you know, the desert. And yet it's an oasis. It's got amazing, amazing accomplishments. You know, the Nobel Prizes come out of there, the technology, the military prowess. We are a strong force of a nation. And I, I, I thank God, I, you know, it's, it's, it's through the will of God that we have that, but it's also through the efforts of the Jewish people. And that's the answer. The answer is that in Germany, in France, in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s, no one would take us. People were trying to escape on boats into Israel, in, into, into what was Palestine then, and the British wouldn't let us in, and people died as a result of it. Now, you know, they're sending planes. El Al is sending planes around the world to bring people to Israel. They were, they were flying in reservists for free. Like it's no, we have, we have Noah's Ark coming from all over, you know, from Israel to all over the world to bring Jews back to Israel. Um, that is our future. That is our legacy. And that is our, that is our future. And, you know, I understand that we have lives here. We have friends, we have, and we're, and there's a lot of places in which we're very welcome. And that, you know, there's this strong support in the Christian community. Um, there are certain colleges, you know, the, the historically black colleges and the, uh, the Christian colleges have signed a letter with the president of Yeshiva University supporting Jews and supporting Israel's fight against Hamas, the evil, the evil that they are. Um, so there are places in America that are still supporting us, but that support is dwindling. And we should use that support as our safe haven for now. We should focus our, again, our philanthropy, our intellectual endeavors, our, our Jewish professors should look to those colleges Jewish students should look to go there, but we should be working towards having our children move to Israel and our grandchildren should be born in Israel because that's the future of the Jewish people. In terms of the donor who is maybe a few years younger than you, who's just really struggling with the idea of pulling their support from their alma mater, They're, they want their kids to go there, they want to, they just, they just, it feels, it doesn't feel good pulling the support, even though they're upset about how their institution responded to 10-7. What would be your response to them? Well, if you look at the trends in colleges, they're ending legacy admissions. They don't want your children. They want your money, but they're not going to give your kids any preferential treatment in getting admitted. I have a, a, a good friend, their, their kids went to the school that my kids went to. Their two older children who are good students, they're alums, and the, the two kids got into Penn. And their third child, who's frankly a better student than the other two, did not get into Penn. And you, know, the, and you see, even though you question whether they really are ending legacy admissions, um, they're officially saying they are. So the idea that your donations are somehow tied to you wanting your children to go to the school, well, that's not even cause and effect anymore necessarily. Um, but also, you should really think about what do you want your kids to learn? And if you look at the curriculum, the way the core curriculum is evolving, um, you know, the, the books that they're banning, you know, the things that they're not allowing to be taught, um, the things they're taking, you know, classics that were the foundational literature, uh, the foundational history books of American civilization and of, frankly, you know, uh, Greek and Roman civilization that is the precursor to American civilization, like all of the history of society going back thousands of years, they're replacing that with 
very modern texts that are skewed uh, to, to a different perspective on the world. And, you know, that's great for an advanced, uh, you know, advanced uh, sociology class or his history class. But, you know, if we're not going to teach the classics, we're not going to teach the foundational values that we grew up with that form the foundation of our country, then we're going to end up with a very different product. And I think that, you know, what I've learned, especially learning Torah, that ancient knowledge and historical knowledge is still relevant today. You don't, you don't throw away things just because they're old. Um, a lot of things are really very relevant. And if you want some stability and consistency in society, if you want your kids to have the values you have, you can't just totally do a, a complete 180 degree switch from what you learned to what they learn. Um, you've got to keep some consistency. Before we wrap up here, I want to ask a question that I imagine, especially, definitely students on campus are struggling with, but people in the professional, um, in their professional lives. And it's the question that comes from someone who says, hey, I understand that you'd want the institution to respond a certain way with 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 what you believe is moral clarity. But uh, David, isn't what ha it's happening in Israel super complicated? Like, it, it not it what's happening really complicated? What's your response to that? That that whole concept comes from a place of ignoring. Ignoring facts that you know the the last five years have been you know rife with people um believing facts that aren't true ignoring facts that are demonstrably true because they don't align with the axioms of their belief system if you believe that liberals are bad then no matter what evidence you see of them doing something good if it violates your axioms then you just don't believe the facts you assume it's fake news and the facts on the ground about israel in recent times, going back the last 1500 years, going back, you know, 3000 years is a story that makes what's going on in Israel right now completely simple. There is a land that's a safe haven for Jews. It is today. It has been throughout history. It is the homeland of the Jewish people. Abraham bought it um, back in that book that we that a lot of us still believe in. And it is a place that not only do we have a right to historically, but we actually have possession of it. You know, we're not giving Manhattan Island back to, you know, Indians, uh, Native Americans, um, because we swindled them out of it. We're not giving back swaths of land in, in, in North America uh, to, the pre, pre, to people who happened to be there, you know, 400 years ago or 600 years ago. Um, you know, we, we have a, a God-given right to the land, as we believe, but we also have a physical right to the land because we're there. And we have been trying to coexist with our neighbors, people who are there for a long time. We have faced terrorism, we faced attacks, um, we faced murders. We gave back Gaza in 2005, uh, uh, you know, as a part of a really misguided peace effort. But the idea that that, that land is occupied is just a factual inaccuracy. It is, they had free elections, they chose to elect a terrorist group, Hamas, as their anointed democratic elected leaders. And since then, they have dismantled all the infrastructure that Israel built up in there when we had ownership of it. They've made it into an impoverished land. They've enriched their leaders and impoverished their people, and then blame us for not supplying them with things that by all rights, they should be providing for themselves. But they take all the aid they get from the world and convert it into weapons. And then they shoot them at us. 
imagine if this is a story. Imagine if in the 1990s, there were pockets of towns and even cities throughout America that were controlled by ISIS, were controlled by Al Qaeda, and they were occasionally leading suicide bombing missions into Chicago and New York and Atlanta, and occasionally launching missiles at New Jersey and at Virginia. And for some ungodly reason, for some strange world pressure, America decided not to do anything about it, but to tolerate their existence and even give them aid and allow the, you know, employ their, their, their citizens and allow them to get aid from other people in the world. Crazy as that sounds, let's say they did that. And then 9-11 happened. Do you think there'd be one of those cities or towns that wasn't burnt to the ground? Seeing what we did to Al Qaeda in Afghanistan, you know, the, the idea that Israel is supposed to re-engage with Gaza, support their people, give them fuel, give them food after the heinous, atrocious, despicable act that they did, not just on 10-7, but over the last 20 years, all the terrorism they've done, the terrorism coming from uh, Islamic Jihad, from Hezbollah, you know, Israel has tolerated something that no nation in the world that had nuclear power, that had a dominant military, that could wipe out any of its enemies anytime they wanted to. No nation in the world would tolerate that. And yet Israel, after the atrocities of 10-7, are being asked for a ceasefire. It's not complicated at all. The complication comes from the axioms that people believe that their assumption is that Israel is evil. That is the axiom that explains the behavior of everyone in the world, the anti-Semites in the world. Their axiom is that Israel is evil, that Jews are evil. It explains the blood libels. It explains the, the belief that, that, that Jews killed, killed their, their Messiah. It believes the, the, the Jews are the cause of the bubonic plague. All of the, 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 the attacks on Jews in history that make no scientific or logical sense come from an axiomatic system that Jews are, are evil. And the statements that the universities are making de defending Hamas, defending the poor, you know, uh, oppressed people of Palestine, uh, you know, accepting the protests of these people walking through college campuses screaming for the genocide of Jewish people. The only reason why you can imagine a university system that demands safe spaces is if they believe that those people are attacking an evil nation, an evil people. And I think that if you if you look at any of these situations and you think they seem they're, they're complicated, if you understand that the complication comes from a an axiomatic system that thinks that Jews are evil and that Israel's evil, that that explains it more than anything complicated going on in in, in Israel. I, the looking at the axioms, I think, is so important because as as people have tried to process what has happened on campus, especially people who haven't been paying attention, I think they're, they're, they're very confused uh, with the response. And what I've said uh, it, to help them understand is that that reaction is a feature, not a bug of the system that currently is on campus. You have institutions that historically were, were bastions of liberalism, and now they're illiberal and they have these frameworks, these ideologies that through which they see the world. And Israel fits into the settler colonial framework that exists on these campuses. And, and to your earlier point, no matter what new information comes in, if it doesn't fit 
with that that lens through that lens it won't be incorporated and there there was a great article in the atlantic recently by simon Mont, montfiore and he he dives into it's called the um the decolonization narrative is dangerous and false and i think that that it, it's time that individuals wake up to the to the realization that these are core axioms that college students now have in their minds. And these are direct products. That, I mean, they are picking them up directly on campus. And it's, it, it's, it's an issue, to say the least. And, and we're seeing it for, you know, this specific, obviously, the, this hits for us, given our Jewish heritage and our belief in the importance of Israel. But it, it, it transpires... It will transpire for other people and other things that they care about. And so that's why I'm so appreciative that you're really, through your actions, your letter, that you focus in on the values, because that's what we should be asking at this moment. We should be asking all, our, all of our alma maters, what, is, what are your values? What do you stand for? That's how we choose our friends. Uh, that's that's how we we operate in the world, right? We need to be surrounded by individuals who ha share values. They can have different uh, different ways to break down issues and, and, and different ideas, but sharing values incredibly important. Yeah, definitely, and especially in the places that educate our children and make them into adults. You know, if you want to have great leaders um, in, in anywhere in your, in your community, in your, in your neighborhood, in your, in your country, in the world, um, those leadership skills are formed in the educational institutions. These, these kids spend their time in. And I think you're seeing what the last 20 or 30 years of college campuses has produced in America. Um, not such great leadership. Um, you don't see, um, patriots, you don't see people rising above their party affiliation, their own selfish um, interests and doing things that are good for the future. You see it with global warming, you see it with, uh, the, with, with politics, you see it with the, the move to extremism, people who are centrist by nature, moving to the left or to the right, simply because they want to keep their jobs and, and, and get reelected or get elected, regardless of what they deeply believe. And they're having to hide statements they made 10, 15, 20 years ago that represent their truth because their truth doesn't work today. It doesn't sell. And that, that change from a value-based system to a transactional existence um, is part of wh why we are where we are today as a country. Well said, well said. Well, I wanna take us home with a few quick fire questions. The first one is generative AI. Is it going to be a net positive or net negative for society? Net negative. Oh, I, I know we're in quick fire, but I want to. Rapid fire. Um, no, look, I, I think that the I think I think the internet is a net negative for society. Um, we've dehumanized ourselves. The generative AI is the epitome of deciding that society is for corporations, for profits, not for people. We're taking jobs that people can use to allow them to integrate and be functional and useful in society that in, in, a, in a more tech, technologically sophisticated society, there's a segment of the population that's being locked out. 
the people who used to be like, you know, the social movers, the people who's, who would like win in the marketplace with their personality, with their charisma. Now you need that and a PhD in computer science or some other advanced physics or, or mathematics um, to be able to succeed in, in, the, in the workforce. And if you take all the jobs that are automatable by um, the kind of technology that generative AI um, it, you know, is capable of generating, of, of, of creating, then you're going to lock swaths of the of society out of the job market. And then these ideas of universal basic income will have to come into play because people will be literally unemployable. You know, my, my father was a taxi driver. And for a variety of reasons, he had some some emotional issues and, and, you know, he dropped out of college and wanted to raise a family and he could get a job as a taxi driver. And he managed to turn that into a taxi business with my uncle and supported my family. And, we you know, uh, he, he died when I was in college, but he he, you know, led, led a, a, a productive life. But what he could do was drive a taxi. If you take that away, if you make all of these taxi drivers into robocars, not only do you make perhaps transportation a little bit more efficient and make companies, you know, the automobile companies or the taxi companies more, more profitable by having a lower, you know, requirements to pay their workforce, you no know, healthcare and so on, but you will lock all the people like my father out of the workforce and force them to be on welfare. Um, so I think that that this AI technology is a closing of the loop of dehumanizing society, making society about corporate profits, about reducing costs, and about making businesses more, you know, slightly more productive. But it's, it's kind of ignoring the fact that society is here for people, not for corporate corporations and not for profits. Fascinating. I, we now have our topic for our next episode together. Um, all right, next fix, quick fire here. Best Philly cheesesteak in Philly? Um, I could not tell you. I, I keep kosher. Um, <laughs> okay. Cheesesteak is not an option. Uh, some wonderful kosher restaurants here, Citron and Rose, which I, I founded uh, uh, 10 years ago with Michael Solomonov. Amazing faux cheesesteaks. We have uh, uh, steaks with, uh, with uh, you know, uh, imitation cheese. Um, very, very good. We have uh, uh, lamb bacon bits, also very, very good. You know, we can do a lot of things with kosher food that uh, can you know, please your palate um, without having anything uh, uh, that, that, that you're forbidden to eat. Lamb bacon bits. Sign me up for that. <laughs> next, next quick fire. Best, in your mind, the best investor of the past 50 years? Um, I would say Warren Buffett. Okay. He was someone that had understood that you look for value. We're talking about values here. You look for value. You don't follow trends. You don't end up investing in things too sophisticated. Until recently, don't invest in, invest in things that are too sophisticated for you to understand. Um, you want to be able to unwind your positions the same way you put them on. And I think his adherence to his discipline for you know half a half a century, um, I think, is really amazing and commendable. Excellent. Last question here: If you were to found a university. And the for the first summer you had required reading. What would be the two books you'd assign? One from the Jewish tradition and one outside. Um, well, assuming you had the foundations to understand it, I would tell you to read the Tanya, which is uh, the the Alter Rebbe's uh, summary or, or, or comp compilation of the kind of Hasidic ideas, the ideas of of it's kind of like the the, the metaphysics. Uh, of the spiritual world, trying to understand the things that we can't perceive 
and how they relate to our lives in the material world. Um, it, it broadens your mind. You have to have a, enough foundation in Torah to really um, understand it, but it's a, fa it's a fascinating, um, mind-altering uh, text that really teaches you a lot about what we can never understand about the world, but we have to live by. And then a book from outside of the Jewish tradition, you had to pair it. Um, that's a hard one. Um, I would say that the, the book that's had the most impact on me as a person is uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. And it's not very practical um, in as some other books, some nonfiction books, but you know, the idea of the, the universe that he creates from the Silmarillion um, and, the, and the early writings he did that created the foundations of his world and then showing the characters going through moral struggles, um, going through relationships, um, conquering evil, give, you know, succumbing to evil and then eventually overcoming it. I think those stories are foundational it's also an amazing literature with, you know, beautiful scenery and beautiful, you know, I mean, the movies are lovely, but the books really um, tell, tell a really complete story. And I think that's something that's really hard to find today. You don't find literature that's that deeply researched and the foundations of it are built up over decades before you actually publish the text themselves. Excellent. Well, glad we ended on some great literature, both Jewish and uh, from outside the Jewish tradition. David, I can't thank you enough for taking the action that you did to communicate really important, uh, create an important conversation for us all to have. Our education, um, our institutions of higher education should be as strong as possible and they should be educating individuals we want to lead our, our country. So uh, I, I'm really excited to continue the conversation at some point, but uh, I want to end here and thank you for your time. I, I really appreciate you giving me a chance to elaborate on my letter and explain my views. And I think these are important conversations to have that in the course of having them, I've actually evolved my views and opened my mind to different perspectives as well. So I think that hopefully this podcast and this conversation will lead to reactions which will help evolve and mature my perspective on this and eventually lead to um, kind of a global outcome that we can all be happy with. Well, I have no doubt others will be inspired to take action and that's a wonderful thing. So thank you. <laughs>